0: This week on Q&A, author and historian Robert Dalek discusses his latest historical narrative, titled Camelot's Court, Inside the Kennedy White House.
1: Robert Dalek, in your recent book, Camelot's Court, Inside the Kennedy White House, the last paragraph of your entire book, I cannot resist saying thank you to President Barack Obama, who has graciously hosted four dinners for presidential historians where I had a close up look at what a president hoped he could learn from history. It provided a glimpse into how a president interacted with men and women trying to offer useful judgments on the not entirely different problems earlier presidents, including Kennedy, faced. What's your insight into President Barack Obama because of four dinners with him? Yep. Well, <clears throat> he's a highly intelligent
2: man. Uh, He is uh, keenly interested in history and the way in which the presidential institution has evolved and what he could take away from past uh, presidential performances to make his a more compelling and more successful administration. I wish, I wish we had, you know, some extraordinary answers to provide him but of course the nature of history is that uh, it's an imperfect uh, humanistic enterprise and he understood this uh, but we talked about a, a great variety of things in those uh, in those interviews or <clears throat> in those dinners and of course there were roughly 12 historians i wasn't the only one there and uh, some of his uh, principal aides including uh, each time one of his principal speech writers so uh, for me, it was a fascinating experience to be able to, at one point, sit right next to the President uh, at dinner and uh, have this kind of exchange with him uh, In many ways, it felt like a uh, an academic seminar because after all, you know he is a uh, someone who uh, has been a professor of law. And uh, uh, it was like being in a seminar with a bunch of colleagues was the way I would characterize it. Did
1: you leave there writing things down after you were there to remind yourself? Yes, of what, indeed. Yes, can indeed. you give us an yes, example indeed. of something?
2: Well, you know, uh, uh, when we're done with this, which uh, I think we'll have more dinners with him, and one of my colleagues at the dinner uh, dinners And I uh, talked a little bit about uh, writing a piece called Dinners with Obama, you see. But I think it'll be a a very positive piece because he listens. Uh, He wasn't intent on giving us instruction or uh, lobbying us for anything in particular, except that at the first dinner he wanted to know uh, uh, how presidents achieved the transformative presidency. How did uh, Franklin Roosevelt do it, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson? How did Ronald Reagan do it with his Reagan revolution? At the second dinner, because this was in 2010, uh, he was slipping somewhat in the polls and uh, did not have the continuing hold on the public's imagination that he had at the start of his first term. Now, of course, that's not unusual. Uh, Once presidents are there for a while, uh, their limitations, uh, flaws are going to be uh, in evidence. But we talked about how to reconnect to the public. And I told him the anecdote about how uh, after Franklin Roosevelt died and his body was being transported uh, from... Uh, Warm Springs, Georgia to Hyde Park where he was uh, buried some man stood by the railway track sobbing and somebody said to the man did you know the president and he said no but he knew me and I related that anecdote to the president and he nodded he understood that making that kind of connection to uh, ordinary folks was essential for uh, presidential success at the third dinner it was in 2011 and uh, we talked about, the coming election. And he was a little more uh, uh, verbal at that point with us. And uh essentially he said he wasn't concerned about any of the Republicans he was facing. In fact, he said, uh, this fellow Romney has twisted himself into a pretzel. Which, of course, proved to be so accurate a uh, assessment of uh, his candidacy uh, in 2012. And uh then he Uh, talked about the fact that his opponent in the election was the economy that's what he saw the last time we had dinner with him was in January of uh, 2013 and uh, almost a year ago just a year ago now and uh, uh, he was very upbeat he had just won re-election he talked about uh, his uh, State of the Union message his inaugural speech that he'd be giving comparisons to other inaugural addresses, especially at second terms, started second terms. We talked a little bit about the issue of the second term curse, you see, which obviously, given how many difficulties he's uh, struggled with uh, during the course of 2013, one could say, well, you know, there it is again. Now, I don't believe in curses. uh, You know, I don't believe in uh, jinxes or anything like that. And I think it's just inevitable that a president is in a second term is going to have a more difficult time than at the start of a first term because presidents come to office initially on a wave of enthusiasm, excitement, even if they've only won by the narrowest of margins, which was true of John Kennedy. You know, He won by a, a, a sliver, and yet very quickly he uh, gained a kind of pap- popularity, kind of approval. From the public. But by the start of a second term, people see the fact that a president doesn't walk on water. He's not a miracle worker, as some people like to think at the start of a presidential administration. And uh, it's more difficult for him, especially if he's dealing with an opposition Congress, as uh,
1: this president has had to deal with. The subtitle of this book that uh, you just wrote, Inside the Kennedy White House, Uh, And you talk about the individuals there. There are still people that we're talking about today. Everybody knows their name that follows history. I wonder if there's anybody in this administration who will be talking about 50 years from now. That's an interesting
2: question. I think Valerie Jarrett, after all, she's been there through uh, uh, the five years. And there's every reason to believe she's going to be there for another three years and so I think uh, some historian is going to want to get her papers uh, interviews with her if possible uh, since uh, she among uh, all the insiders at the White House probably has been closer to President Obama than any other uh, advisor So I think she's certainly one name that will uh,
3: register on historians.
1: Here's a fellow you write about in your book a lot. This is from 1996.
3: He was here for a book notes. Let's watch it. John Kennedy intended to write his own history of his presidency uh, with my help. And more than once he would refer to me. He would would say in talking to me, uh, he would refer to that book we're going to write. And I always said to him, the book you're going to write, Mr. President, because I didn't have any intention of uh, hanging around uh, his life uh, forever. But when he was suddenly gone and could not write that book, I felt I had some obligation to do it.
1: How did he fit in the Kennedy White House? Well, he was, of course,
2: the President's wordsmith. He was a brilliant speechwriter. But... He and Kennedy had a kind of uh, symbiotic relationship. I don't mean they were friends. I don't mean that they socialized, because Sorensen said they they didn't have that kind of relationship. But there was a kind of intellectual exchange between them and a kind of uh, intuitive understanding of where this president wanted to go in his administration and what he wanted to say. And uh, Sorensen had the gift of uh, uh, being able to translate that into language that uh, is memorable, you see. Because, after all, uh, some of Kennedy's speeches are going to last, are going to be remembered. You know, what I find so interesting, Brian, is that with John Kennedy, a recent poll asked people to assess the last nine presidents from Kennedy to uh, George W. Bush. Kennedy came out on top with 85%. During this recent uh, memory of his uh, assassination, the commemoration, 90% approval rating. The only one close to him was Ronald Reagan. And the question any historian has to ask is, why is this the case after all? He was there for only a thousand days. It was the seventh briefest presidency in American history. And the answer, I think, is that on the one hand, people don't much like his successors. Johnson with Vietnam, Nixon with Watergate, uh, uh, Ford's truncated presidency, Jimmy Carter's uh, presidency, which people see as essentially a failure. Uh, The only one is Reagan. The two Bushes don't register that powerfully. What about Bill Clinton? Bill Clinton, yes, but he had the Monica affair. The only president in the country's history, elected president, to have been impeached. See, it's sort of a a black mark against his record. Kennedy, of course, dying so young at the age of 46, having only been there for a 1,000 days, it's a blank slate on which you can write anything. And he was so young. And the country identifies with that. And they have a sense of loss over, to this day, I think, over his assassination. But he gives people hope. And so what they remember are his words. See, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. His famous uh, peace speech at American University in June of uh, 1963, in which he said, we, th- we need to, to, to think anew about the Soviet Union. He and Khrushchev had come out of that Cuban Missile Crisis, nuclear war, so much on the horizon. They were both, I think, frightened, terrified by that experience. And as a consequence, Kennedy wanted to move towards some kind of detente with the Soviet Union. And Khrushchev was receptive to that. That's how you got the nuclear test ban treaty signed in the summer of 1963. Happened very quickly, you see, because they had been hassling over that for years. When suddenly it occurred. It was a spin-off, I think, from that uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, the, the, the terror that they faced over that. I think if Kennedy had lived, we would have seen detente with the Soviet Union more quickly than it came about with uh, Richard Nixon.
1: You spent a lot of time talking about the individuals around him and people like uh, Mr. Sorensen. And here was the view of Jackie Kennedy in March to June when they did did these interviews with Arthur Schlesinger in 1964. Here's what she said about Mr. Sorensen.
4: I know one thing about the legislative breakfast that Larry O'Brien told me. This is something interesting about Ted and Larry couldn't stand Ted Sorensen. So one night he was telling me what, well, you know, they were obviously the Irishman would be jealous of the Sorensons, and... But he said so many times, Larry would have prepared an agenda for the breakfast. And just before they were ba- about to start, Ted would t- uh, ask to see it and take it. And he'd just change one or two sentences and then initial at TCS and pass it all around that way. <laughs> and you'll see that heavy hand of Ted Sarenton in more places. I mean, he, you know, wanted his imprint on so many things.
3: So self-assertion?
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told you about the profiles and courage thing and all I mean he's doing it to Larry O'Brien, everyone. But that's just so sneaky.
3: He was on the whole better in the White House, though, wasn't he?
4: Oh, yes. But, I mean, I just think... Well,
5: that's
4: such a petty thing to do. Someone said he loved himself, and finally he loved one other person, which was Jack. And he also had such a crush on Jack. I can remember when he first started to try to speak like you or dare to call him Jack. And he'd sort of blush. And I think he wanted to be easy all the ways Jack was easy. The sort of civilized side of Jack would be easy at dinners, or of girls like you and men. Um, Cause he, and because he knew he wasn't quite that way in the beginning, it almost went into a sort of a resentment. I mean, it was very mixed up in his own inferiority, he had a big inferiority complex, so you can see the things sort of all working back and forth. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I never saw him very much in the White House.
1: Quite critical, said he was in love with himself, uh, talked about profiles and courage, only interested in himself. Is that fair? Uh, I think it's an exaggeration. Uh, There's no question that
2: uh, Ted Sorensen was uh, a keeper of the flame. Uh, After I, my personal experience with him, after I revealed the uh, Kennedy medical records, he was the one who uh, signed off. There was a a three-man committee that controlled those medical records. And two of the members signed off. And Sorensen was reluctant to do it. I went to see him in New York, met with him in his uh, residence, in his apartment, and uh, persuaded him to let me have access to the records. Well, he didn't know what was in there. And when uh, the records came out, and the New York Times ran a front-page story about my findings. The Atlantic magazine published an article out of uh, my book in, on, these, um, on Kennedy's medical history. Sorensen was angry. And when he'd see me, which was a few times after that, he'd say, there was no cover-up. Well, of course there was. I mean, they were hiding from the public uh, the extent of Kennedy's medical history and uh, difficulties because if people knew how many medical uh, health problems Kennedy had, I don't think he ever would have been elected. In 1960, however unfair that may be, because he acquitted himself brilliantly during the presidency, I set his medical records down alongside of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis with the tapes we had, and uh, uh, he didn't. There were no concessions to his uh, medical difficulties during that crisis. Now it was the medications that helped him, I think, get through it without uh, uh, stumbles, but. Uh, uh, anyway, to get back to your point about about Sorensen, uh, he was a, a somewhat prickly character, uh, very defensive about uh, Kennedy, as if he were the you know keeper of the of of the flame. Um, but I don't know why Jacqueline Kennedy was so uh, critical of him. I think she was uh, overly critical in the sense that uh, Sorensen was a, a total loyalist. And he served Kennedy's needs and desires and wishes to uh, the nth degree, and it wasn't as if he stole thunder from Kennedy. Uh, he may, he didn't make claims to having um, published profiles and courage. Uh, did that, he
1: or did he not write profiles and courage?
2: Well, it, it, that's a complicated story. Uh, he did write part of it. There were others who contributed. My research told me because Kennedy would would listen to the uh, tapes of uh, the transcripts of uh, the chapters and he would edit them now, it would be unfair to say that Kennedy was the author, of uh, the sole author of Profiles and Courage. On the other hand, it would be unfair to say they didn't have anything to do with it, or had a ghostwriter do it, because he was vitally involved. So it was a, a, a combined effort, so to speak. And uh, uh, But uh, I think uh, Mrs. Kennedy was a, a bit jealous of, uh, uh Sorensen maybe trying to take too much uh, uh, thunder and too much credit and uh, but you know these are complex
1: relationships that uh, spring up in these white houses. By the way, you write on page two health problems, including <clears throat> addison's disease, A possible fatal malfunctioning of the adrenal gland is what that is. Yes. Chronic back pain that had led to major unsuccessful surgeries. Spastic colitis that triggered occasional bouts of diarrhea, prostatitis, urethritis, and allergies had added greatly to the normal strains of the nationwide campaign. You say in this book that Ted Kennedy found out about his brother's, all of his health problems from your book. Well, not all of them, but I think because he knew
2: that uh, his brother had uh, a medical history and had uh, health problems but I don't think he knew the full extent because he uh, he was very admiring of my biography an unfinished life and told me so and Arthur Schlesinger was as well Arthur was very kind and said to me things the best biography that's been done of uh, Kennedy and what both of them uh, uh, concluded was that my description of Kennedy's health problems Enhanced rather than undermined his uh, public standing, his reputation in history, because how he managed to manage to uh, rise above his uh, health difficulties and be an effective president was a very impressive achievement. And so they were, they were taken with that. But yes, Ted did not know the full extent of his brother's health problems, and it's the measure of how much they hit it how much the uh, uh, Joe Kennedy uh, Bobby Kennedy uh, the president himself Jackie uh, they were the ones who knew but uh, it was largely hidden from the world
1: here's another person that gets a lot of mention in your book George Ball
3: 66 because I was tired and broke Uh, I've been there too long and uh, it was a very exhausting job believe me I mean there's Dean Rusk destroyed his health by staying there for the balance of the, of the Johnson term. Uh, no, I, I wanted to get out. I mean, it was, it was not just Vietnam, although Vietnam contributed because it wasn't that I wasn't making, getting anywhere in my, my protest, but, uh, which, 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 is true, but, uh, that, uh, I couldn't get the president and, and the people around him interested in any, any other part of the world.
1: Outspoken critic of Vietnam, although you say in your book that in the early on times that he was backing basically what they wanted to do in Vietnam in the early years. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, uh, he was a loyalist. What did he do, by the way? I'm sorry.
2: But he was on the Secretary of State, and he replaced uh, Chester Bowles, who uh, Kennedy uh, didn't like having around at all and was trying very hard to get rid of and finally had to sort of uh, send him on uh, a mission around the world or make him a kind of international uh, diplomat uh, or diplomat uh, going all around the world. Well, uh, uh, he replaced uh, him with uh, George Ball because Ball was much more of a team player. On the other hand, Behind the scenes, Ball was candid with Kennedy about Vietnam in particular. And he told him at one point, Mr. President, if you put two 300,000 ground troops into those jungles of Vietnam, you'll never hear from them again. And Kennedy said to him, George, you're crazy as hell. Meaning, I believe, that I'm never going to do that. Now, of course, we'll never know exactly what Kennedy would have done about Vietnam. But on the other hand, when Ball was sort of told to defend the administration, speak for it. That was his job. You know, it's sort of like a vice president. You don't uh, go out on the hustings and give speeches that are uh, in uh, contradiction with what a president is saying. <clears throat> and so he he pretty much defended. But behind the scenes, he was, he was candid with Kennedy and was one of those who was a very early critic, along with John Kenneth Galbraith and uh, George Kennan, uh, they want Kennedy against uh, and I don't think Kennedy ever would have uh, done what Lyndon Johnson did in Vietnam. I don't think he ever would have put in 545,000 troops.
1: Here's an audio recording of John Kennedy right before he was assassinated talking about the ZM coup. Yep. ZM was the Present. president of uh, South Vietnam. But let's yep. listen to this and then get you to interpret this.
3: Monday, November 4th, 1963, the, uh, over the weekend, the uh, coup in Saigon took place, culminated uh, three months of uh, conversation about a coup, comma, conversation which divided the government here and in Saigon. Opposed to a coup was uh, General Taylor, the Attorney General, Secretary McNamara, to a somewhat less degree John McCone partly because of an old hostility to Lodge which causes him to lack confidence in Lodge's judgment Palmer partly as a result of a new hostility because Lodge uh, shifted his station chief and in favor of the coup was State led by Abel Harriman, George Ball, Roger Hillsman, supported by Mike Foster at the White House. I uh, feel that uh, we must bear a good deal of responsibility for it, beginning with our cable of early August, which we suggested the coup, period in my judgment that wire was badly drafted. The comments should never have been sent on a Saturday. I uh, should not have given my consent to it without a roundtable conference in which McNamara and Taylor could have presented their views.
1: So what did the United States do in relationship to uh, ZM? Well, there's no question that they facilitated the coup, but
2: Kennedy's uh, recollections here, what's omitted from it was a discussion of the fact that ZM was uh, assassinated, was killed, and the generals in Vietnam said, well, he had committed suicide. And Kennedy didn't believe that for a moment because uh, ZM was a good Catholic. And Kennedy said he, he never, privately, said he, he never would have done that. And I think Kennedy felt a certain amount of guilt uh, over the fact that uh, ZM was assassinated because he said privately, listen, whatever his failings, He had uh, led his country for quite a few years and done constructive things and was a bulwark against uh, a communist takeover. So he was uh, reflecting on his own recriminations about having allowed such a coup to take place and also the concern now that the United States was going to have to take greater responsibility for Vietnam than it had taken in the past. And Kennedy was keen to get out of there and he had a conversation with mike Forrestall. you see uh, the day before he went to dallas texas and he wanted when he returned there to be a full-scale review about uh, vietnam including the possibility of getting out you see uh, he i don't think he ever would have put in those massive numbers of ground troops i don't know what he would have done i don't think he himself knew what uh, what he would have done you know Brian. I love the anecdote that when he first became uh, was first elected Arthur Schlesinger Bobby Kennedy asked Arthur if he'd like to be an ambassador and Schlesinger said no Bobby if I do anything I'd like to be at the White House and uh, a few days later he saw the president-elect and Kennedy said to him so Arthur I hear you're coming to the White House and Schlesinger said I am what will I be doing there Kennedy said I don't know Arthur I don't even know what I'll be doing there but you can bet we'll both be busy more than eight hours a day The point is, he understood that being president was not a set-piece affair, that it evolved. And he grew in that office. That, in many ways, was his greatest strength. He grew in the
1: office. I want to read back to you what you wrote in Chapter 8. After 18 months of interactions with his counselors, Kennedy had diminished confidence in most of the men advising him on policy, with the exception of Bobby... It was principally a sounding board and an instrument for testing out ideas on others. He (coughs) thought it best to rely less on his associates and more on himself for the hard decisions he seemed to be confronting all the time. Neither Rusk... Dean Rusk, Secretary of State, nor McNamara, Secretary of Defense, nor Bundy, his National Security Advisor, nor Rostow—oh no, Bundy—Rostow uh, was his National Security Advisor. Wait,
2: no, no, Rostow was uh, 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 under Bundy. Bundy under was Bundy. the National. He Rostow
1: became National Security Advisor under Johnson. Under John, nor Taylor, meaning Maxwell Taylor, the general, had impressed him as all that masterful about any of the big issues that had faced he had faced in Cuba, Berlin, or Vietnam. Right, That's yes. a strong indictment, yeah. it seems
2: to be. Well, the- he, he was someone, as I say, who grew in the office. He was badly burned by the uh, Cuban Bay of Pig experience. Uh, he had listened to the experts, you see. CIA, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, he said, and he went to see De Gaulle uh, in France. He did that trip in May, June of 61. Uh, and De Gaulle said to him, you should surround yourself with the smartest possible people. Listen to them, hear what they have to say. But at the end of the day, you have to make up your own mind. And he, Kennedy, remembered what Harry Truman had said, the buck stops here. And I think after that Bay of Pigs, he was absolutely determined to make up his own mind, hear what these experts had to say, weigh what they were telling him, but at the end of the day, he was going to make the judgment, and he was the responsible party. And you see that. You see that. Uh, that was abundantly clear when you listen to all those and, and read the transcripts of all those tapes uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was his own man. He was the one who was making of his own mind. You know, he held the Joint Chiefs, uh, Taylor, uh, at arm's length. They wanted to bomb, invade, and he didn't want to do it.
1: We couldn't afraid. figure out in your book whether you thought he really liked Maxwell Taylor or he didn't. I know you say <coughs> he didn't like the Chiefs at all. You were very, no. very oh, he was very critical of the Chiefs. Very critical. I mean, they all seem to hate the military. Well, uh, Taylor, you see,
2: began with a kind of cachet because he was sort of Kennedy's guy, uh, and made and Kennedy made him the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs. But I think over time the fact that uh, Taylor so much reflected what the Joint Chiefs were saying during the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, subsequently about Cuba as well, that uh, Kennedy, I think, became skeptical of him. And I don't know that uh, he would have lasted that much longer into a, uh, a second term. You know, the anecdote that after the Missile Crisis was ending, Kennedy had held the Joint Chiefs at arm's length. So he brings them in and they say to him, Mr. President, you've been had, Khrushchev is hiding the missiles in caves. See, Well, they leaked this, the White House leaks this, and Khrushchev wrote Kennedy a note saying, I don't live in the caveman age. In essence, I'm no caveman, you see. But uh, uh, the Joint Chiefs, they talk about the need to still plan uh, bombing and invasion, And Kennedy says, well, you know, go ahead, make plans, because you never know what's going to happen. And, of course, they make all sorts of contingency plans. Part of their plan was to drop a nuclear weapon on Cuba, see. And he thought this was crazy. And they said, oh, the collateral damage, in essence, could be contained. Well, what it would have done to the south coast of Florida, let alone to Cuba, which it would have turned into a a, a pile of rubble. And so he thought they were kind of mad. But, you know, giving them uh, their due... One has to recall that the Joint Chiefs, they came out of World War II, see, and they remembered fighting Hitler, Mussolini, uh, the Japanese military who fought to the bitter end, and uh, their attitude was, bomb them back to the Stone Age, which is what they did in Germany, uh, and and, and Japan, Tokyo, uh, the fire bombings of Tokyo, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki atomic bombings. So this was their attitude that... Uh, who was it? The, the Thomas Power, the head of Air Forces, said, "Listen, what's all this concern about nuclear weapons? If at the end of a war with the Soviet Union there are three Americans left and two Soviets, we've won." See, so
1: it was this kind of. Uh, this is a small thing, but what do you make then of Bobby Kennedy had eleven children. One of his uh, children is named Matthew Maxwell. Taylor-Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Bobby Kennedy had
2: great regard for Maxwell Taylor and he was, in many ways, a revered military figure and someone who they admired because he had resigned from his uh, uh, military position during the Eisenhower presidency because he disagreed with the Eisenhower idea of uh, massive retaliation and he was the one who spoke for the idea of building up ground forces to combat or uh, counter uh, any Soviet threat in Europe. And they, that's why they brought him into the uh, White House. The Kennedys brought him into the White House in the first place, because he had this opposing view to the idea of massive retaliation. See, And so they appreciated that. But over time, I think, the fact that he was reflecting, because he was in a difficult position... Uh, was he going to come to the White House and say, oh, you know, the Joint Chiefs are all wet, you know, what they're advising you, I think it's not. So
1: more than not, he uh, reflected what they were saying.
2: And I don't think Kennedy found that very appealing at all.
1: Another man that gets a lot of attention is former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. This is recorded in 1996 on Book Notes. And I know he went on to serve Lyndon Johnson, but let's listen to this and put him in perspective.
5: November 65 to the press in Saigon I said it'll be a long war Uh, so what should I say to the enemy we're losing that McNamara and by the way my report to the president which I said uh, I said in in December 65 to him there's only a one in three chance or at best a one in two chance that we can win militarily he said do you mean to say you don't think we can win militarily I said yes now, that was my report to Should I have said that publicly? What do you think? What does your audience think? Now, this is a terrible dilemma. And, and particularly so when I want to tell you that I was in a very small minority. And I'm not saying I was right. Other people thought then, and many think today, that we were winning then. And as I've suggested, some people think today we were winning then. It was the press that caused us lose. That is baloney.
1: Your book's full of American leaders and generals going into Vietnam and coming back and saying, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning. No one came back ever and said we're not winning. What do you think of that? Well, you know, I knew McNamara a little bit.
2: I interviewed him a couple of times. And the first time I interviewed him, I began by asking him about Vietnam. He said, I'm not going to talk about that. This was uh, prior to 1998 when I was working on my second Lyndon Johnson volume a flawed giant within 15 minutes all he could talk about was Vietnam see he was profoundly conflicted about Vietnam now during the Kennedy presidency he was the biggest advocate of exercising muscle in Vietnam asserting our uh, uh, authority our power and the journalists like David Halberstam see who uh, uh, raised questions with him he was dismissive of them even contemptuous, you see. And so, uh, sure, he eventually came to the proposition that uh, this was a military no-win situation in Vietnam, but he had been so arrogant about uh, uh, leading us at that war, and I think that's what agitated him so much, And uh, and where he says, you know, you think I could say in public that we only had a one-in-two or one-in-three chance of winning, you see? Well, you know, the point is he eventually got out of the Johnson administration Johnson saw him uh, sort of having almost a nervous collapse over his uh, struggle over Vietnam, and they sent him off to be uh, president of the World Bank. But he was a man who was profoundly conflicted, but only over time. He was one of the architects of expansion, Uh, a larger war in Vietnam. Uh, The biggest talk was uh, Walt Rostow. Rostow became Johnson's national security advisor. Rostow, during the Kennedy presidency, was already talking about bombing Hanoi and Haiphong and putting ground troops in there. And he never gave up on that war. I knew Rostow as well, talked to him, interviewed him, uh, knew him when I would go to uh, the Johnson Library of Texas. And uh, uh, his attitude was, We saved the other Southeast Asian countries. We gave them time to develop. That was his rationale. The same thing from William Westmoreland. We gave them
1: time to develop. Page 329. There's a juxtaposition in in one long paragraph, uh, and it gets back to the image of the president and whether or not if we'd have known he was that sick, would he have been elected. This is another one of these that if we'd have known this, what would we have thought? Um, Jackie Kennedy reflected the depths of their fears when she told her husband that she and the children wanted to die with him this was during the Cuban Missile Missile Crisis Uh, if it came to that despite her reluctance to leave he was sending her out to the country or someplace away from the White House um, he sent her and the children away to the safety of a bomb shelter then you write he then invited Mimi Beardsley to spend the night of October the 27th with him at the White House, she witnessed Kennedy's grave expression and funereal tone that evening when he told her that, quote, I'd rather my children be red than dead. And Mimi Beardsley was who? Well,
2: she was a 1920-year-old intern who uh, Kennedy uh, began having an affair with uh, in the summer of 1962. And he had a, a sustained uh, affair, relationship with her uh, to the end of his life. Uh, she saw him the week before. Uh, she describes in her book how she saw him the week before uh, he went off to Texas and she claims in her book that he said to her, well, I wish I could take you with me to Dallas, but I can't. Well, of course he couldn't because Jackie Kennedy was going on the trip with him. And. Uh, uh, he had this relationship with her, in which they were vitally tied to one another. In a way, it was you know a really curious business. That uh, and there was something uh, bizarre almost about this. After all, he was a forty-five-year-old man, president of the United States. He had relationships with women galore. See. Why did he have to seduce this 19, 20-year-old kid? Now, she doesn't complain in the book about this. Her uh, book. Her book. You know, in fact, she wrote me a note uh, saying she thanked me for having brought this information forward in my first book in 2003 because she she had carried this as a secret, you know, and her book is called Once Upon a Secret. And, uh, and she said also in her note to me that... Uh, uh, that's how she met her second husband because of um, this story coming out. And uh, uh, I never met her, but we corresponded. Uh, we had, uh, it seems like a very nice, intelligent woman.
1: How did you find the story in 2003? Well, <clears throat> uh,
2: I had read in the uh, Kennedy Library an oral history by a woman named Barbara Gamarikian who was the deputy uh, press secretary at the uh, Kennedy White House under uh, P.S. Salinger. And I happened to meet her at a cocktail party here in Washington. And uh, I said to her, Barbara, I've just read your oral history in the 17 blacked out pages. And she agreed to let me in them. Well, when I read them, uh, (laughs) this is what she revealed, that Kennedy had this affair with this 1920 year old And then uh, all I had was 38 words, two lines in my biography in 2003 about this issue. And uh, I, I wasn't intent on making a big deal out of this. What interested me about it was the fact that I had interviewed a number of journalists for that biography. And I asked them, Did you know about Kennedy's womanizing? They said, Yes, or oh, we suspected. Why didn't you write about it? You didn't do it in the 1960s. You didn't intrude on a president's private life in that way. And so, uh, it was, it was hidden from the public. Well, when I brought this forward, the press got onto this and uh, the New York Daily News, a reporter called me up and they said, who's this woman? Uh, I didn't know who she was, and Barbara didn't want to tell me. And I I trusted what Barbara was telling me and had written and uh, said in her oral history. And I didn't want to know. I said, this woman must be in her 60s. Leave her alone. Why, you know, she doesn't want to bring it out. Why should I? Anyway, they found out who she was. Good investigative journalist, I guess. uh, Journalism, I guess you could say. And uh, she then was sort of all over the place. And the New York Daily News for three days in a row ran front-page stories about Kennedy's Monica. It was the time of the Monica Lewinsky business. And the first day they had the story on page three, they had a picture of Monica Lewinsky and of me.
1: <laughs> As I said to my wife, I never even met the woman. <laughs> well, here's the NBC interview with Meredith Vieira, just a little bit of it, with Mimi Birdsley uh, a couple of years ago.
0: And the last room that um, we went into was a bedroom was Jackie Kennedy's bedroom. I learned later that it was Mrs. Kennedy's bedroom. Uh, it was blue, pale blue, I remember. I felt the president getting closer and closer to me. Looked me right in the eyes and I I actually he then put his hands on my shoulders and sort of guided me down to the edge of the bed, sort of the corner of the bed. And I think he may have even said to me, is this all right? Are you okay? Is this okay? I don't really think I knew what he was talking about. What I felt was, is what okay? I didn't really know what was about to happen. And then what did happen was I lost my virginity right there. Then I think I went a little bit into shock.
1: Why did she write the book, do you think, and go through all all the details about their relationship over an 18-month period, and she flew around the country, available to him at the end of the day? Yeah. It is so interesting, Brian, because when I first uh,
2: published my book, and the story came out about her, and the New York Daily News revealed uh, her name and who she was, I heard on the grapevine that uh, a publisher offered her a million dollars to write her uh, book, a memoir, and it wasn't until, you know, what, eight years later that she finally did it. So I never asked her. I don't know why she did it. Maybe she needed the money. (laughs) I suspect they still were willing to pay her because it really was very much a tell-all book. And of course, some of the details she reveals are somewhat shocking, you know.
1: Well, go back to what I, when I read the two paragraphs. Jackie Kennedy has great fears about her husband. She wants to keep the children and herself around him in case they die. And then in the next page, he's on October the 27th during the Cuban Missile Crisis is going upstairs to her bedroom. Jackie Kennedy's bed and bedding down this 19-year-old or 18-year-old or whatever she was, what are we as the public, is this, does this really not matter well, to the public? Y- you know, it, it
2: it two ways you can look at this, Brian. On the one hand, did it have an impact on his conduct to the presidency? As far as I can tell, no. I mean, uh, was he going to be found out? Was he going to be impeached? Uh, not in 1962, 63, as I said, the press did not uh, write about a president's... At least the mainstream press did not write about a president's private life in that way. But it says something about the man's character, about his personality, about the fact that there was some kind of deep-felt neediness that this man had, that he had to seduce this 1920 year old young woman. I mean, and it's not just that, but... Her description of some of the things that went on, you know, oral sex, that uh, he encouraged her to give oral sex to Dave Powers, Kennedy's principal aide. And And his brother. And and his brother, but she resisted when he suggested that uh, she perform oral sex on Ted Kennedy. But with Dave Powers, she did it. And she said, Kennedy watched. He later apologized to them. But, you know, what. What
1: word can you apply to it? Perverse? I mean, you know, there's something... Here's Arthur Schlesinger, who wrote the book A Thousand Days, I believe, and right after the presidency, he was his historian, and here's what he said he knew about the dalliances of uh, JFK.
3: I mean, the current theory seems to be that uh, everyone in Washington knew about a parade of bimbos through the
1: White House, and that they covered up because they liked Kennedy or because... The rules
3: uh, deflected that kind of in-
1: inquiry. Uh, that we uh, read Ben Bradley's book. Ben Bradley was uh, Jack Kennedy's closest friend in the press. As head of the Newsweek bureau, he was at the nerve center of news gathering there. Uh, ben Bradley says writes that he did not know about these things. I certainly was not aware of any kind of. Diff- waywardness, which would interfere with the conduct of public business. you believe that? Well, the uh, journalists
2: I talked to, uh, including uh, Bob Novak, uh, said they suspected. They had clues. They thought there were uh, uh, lots of women coming and going from the White House. And in fact, in my first Uh, 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 biography, a journalist told me uh, the story that when Kennedy was on the campaign trail in 1960, he was in Northern California. There were a bunch of pom-pom girls from the local college. Kennedy pointed to one of them. His aide went up to this young woman and said to the senator would like to see you in his hotel room. She went up there and the story the journalist told me, how he knows this exactly, I don't know is that maybe this young woman told him, but the the journalist told me that uh, uh Kennedy said to this young woman he looked at his watch and said, "Well, we have fifteen minutes." now what happened after that journalist didn't say, but the point is
1: sure they knew they suspected, and uh, uh but' is the, is the important point then as you said earlier that whether it's this president or any president and whether we knew or didn't know is whether or not it had an impact on the presidency is that the only thing we have to worry about
2: well i think that certainly is a a, a central proposition you know this certainly is between him and his wife as to uh what their uh, relationship is like and uh whether the president is a philanderer or not but you know in this day and age it seems to me that it would be madness for a president to try and do this because it's a different world from what it was in the 1960s. So uh, they would be, uh, it would be brought forward, it would be all over the the press, all over the television, and uh, would probably destroy the man's presidency, you see. So, but it was a different time in the 1960s. I'm not justifying it. I mean, I think that it was terribly excessive Uh, as to what he did with this uh, young woman. On the other hand, I'm also someone who, I'm not a Puritan, and (laughs) I'm not saying that, uh, uh, my God, he should have just been loyal to Jackie. I mean, that was between them. Now, she knew about this. She knew he was a philanderer. And uh, there was the anecdote that they were up in Canada, and uh, they were in a receiving line, and uh, there was a military aide standing next to, a White House military aide, and she said to him in French, "Who this man understood French, it's not enough, I come to Canada and stand in line. And one of these bimbos was in line to shake her hand. And she was furious at this uh, uh, situation.
1: And who can blame her? See, Dean Rusk was Secretary of State. And you have this quote, I just wanted you to give some background on this. Rusk had been a cautious but steady presence throughout the discussion. He described his function as trying to, quote, keep the group from moving too far or too fast. Bobby Kennedy privately described him as, quote, playing the role of the dumb dodo for this reason. Yeah. Did he think he was a dumb dodo?
2: Well, he didn't really think he was a dumb dodo, but he saw Rusk <clears throat> that uh, his personality was such that he was very deferential to uh, uh, the president. On making a foreign policy. But I think there's a, a, a mixed uh, assessment here in the sense that this is what Kennedy wanted. He didn't want a Secretary of State who was going to vie with him and compete with him uh, on the making of foreign policy. The Kennedy administration was a foreign policy administration. Kennedy was not that interested initially in domestic affairs. He was dragged, so to speak, kicking and screaming into dealing with civil rights. And when he dealt with it, I think it was quite courageous of him to put that civil rights bill before the Congress in 1963 because it could have jeopardized his reelection. since he knew he was going to be alienating uh, Southern states, Southern voters. And uh, they had put him across in 1960. He didn't know he was going to run against Goldwater. He thought he might well be running against him. But he didn't know for sure. And so it was courageous of him to do that. He felt time had come. As I said, he grew. He evolved in that office. But uh, he was very much a foreign policy president. And I don't think he wanted a secretary of state who was going to be uh, uh, aggressive about uh, challenging what he wanted to do in uh, the foreign affairs. What Kennedy complained about was that Russ didn't have ideas. He was not someone who came forward with suggestions that Kennedy might have used, that he had little imagination in dealing with foreign policy. And that was, I think, a, a legitimate complaint.
1: Your first trip here was in 1991 when you wrote a book on Lyndon Johnson. And here you are in 1991, a number of years ago. Some of the things
2: I've already found, for example, about his presidency is that he was trying to use the FBI to get certain journalists and uh, work against uh, Paul Newman, the movie actor who was advocating Johnson's uh, impeachment in 1967 over Vietnam. And Johnson is trying to get the FBI to go after Paul Newman to see what they can uh, find to use against him. So, I mean, he was uh, could be ruthless, and I suspect if these things were known at the time, uh, he could have been impeached and uh, driven from office. How many books on Lyndon Johnson? Uh, two volumes, uh, and then I did it for Oxford University Press, a uh, compressed one, one, one volume. But, uh, yeah, two, two big volumes of, uh, Lone Star Rising and Floor Giant, 91, 1998 was the second volume.
1: This may be an unfair question for you. I'm not sure you're allowed to ask these kind of questions. What was what's the difference between your take on Lyndon Johnson and Robert Caro's? Well, I think uh, uh, my attempt
2: in my uh, Johnson work was to strike some kind of balance, and I feel that way uh, still about Johnson. You know, this poll I cited before, where Kennedy has an eighty-five percent approval rating, Johnson has only a 49% approval rating. He's third from the bottom. We're coming up now to the anniversary of the war on poverty, uh, the Great Society. Uh, Johnson did some extraordinarily uh, constructive things for this country. Sure, we didn't abolish poverty as he wanted to, but he certainly eased the plight of people, and he took another step forward from where the New Deal and Franklin Roosevelt were in humanizing the American industrial system. And I think that's to be admired and applauded. because course, he was ruined by Vietnam. Uh, and that's the shadow that continues to hang over his uh, reputation. Um, I don't know what Mr. Caro is going to say about the Johnson presidency, you see. Uh, he's just uh, reaching that point in writing about the Johnson presidency. But I think Caro has evolved in time over uh, his uh, picture of Johnson. You know, in the beginning, there was some very, very critical... Uh, writing about uh, Johnson, particularly when he ran against Coke Stevenson in that uh, nineteen forty-eight uh, Senate campaign, and uh, and I think he he he's become more uh, I don't know what word to use receptive or uh, gentle in his criticism of him, and uh, and of course he, his his volumes are beautifully written. Uh, they are uh, a model of how to engage a, uh, a general audience, you see. But I'll be
1: very curious to see what his uh, presidential volume, well, volumes, plural, uh, turn out to be. Born in Brooklyn, went to the University of Illinois to get your undergraduate degree in history, PhD and, and a master's from Columbia. I wrote down the places you've taught in your life. Yep. Boston University, Columbia, Oxford, UCLA, for how many years? 30 years. On campus in, in yep. L.A.? Yep. Caltech? Yep. University of Texas, Dartmouth, yep. uh, now teaching at Stanford?
2: I teach for Stanford University in Washington. I teach a, a course on the presidency, a, a seminar. Uh, I looked at that picture. Who was that handsome young fellow you had on camera there? That's
1: <laughs> well, 23 years ago. Uh, son Matt, what's yes. he do?
2: Uh, my son, Matthew, has his uh, earned bachelor's degree from Berkeley, uh, PhD in modern American political history from Columbia. Uh, he became a speechwriter, was uh, Richard Gephardt's speechwriter for, uh, I think, two and a half years. Uh, currently, he's a full-time faculty member for the University of California in Washington. They have a big uh, Washington uh, uh, center on Rhode Island Avenue, and he teaches uh, full-time for them. He published an excellent book on Ronald Reagan called The Right Moment, and he's uh, finishing a book he will call uh, Eat War, Sleep War, Think War, Franklin Roosevelt's Civil Defense. And it's about Roosevelt's civil defense in 1940 to uh, 44. Where did you meet Jerry Dalek? In
1: uh, in California, in Los Angeles. How long have you been married to her? Uh, It'll be 49 years this year. And what did she do? When, what did she do when you met her? Oh, she became
2: a health policy uh, analyst and uh, she headed a non-profit in Los Angeles called the Center for Healthcare Rights dealing with Medicare and uh, uh, Medicaid. And uh, when we moved to Washington it was because of her job offer, she worked for something called Families USA, heading their policy department, and then she went to a uh, institute uh, at Georgetown
1: uh, where they did uh, health policy analysis. So she had a long career in uh, in health policy. You've written twelve 14 major works, including the one that we've been talking about, and I look at the list out front. Um, of all those, one on Harry Truman, Nixon-Kissinger, LBJ, uh, John F. Kennedy, Franklin Roosevelt, and then the book on William Dodd. Right. Uh, it's the same book, that uh, Garden of Beasts, that Eric Larson did. Not the same book, but the same subject matter. Right. Which one of these did you have the most fun writing? Well, I think in some ways maybe the most fun
2: was Kennedy because I did get into uh, such interesting and in some ways startling new information. But uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, I found that fascinating because he is a fascinating character, and uh, uh, I'm now going to go back to FDR, and uh, I've been invited by the Viking Penguin Press to uh, write a, a big one-volume life of uh, FDR. And uh, so uh, I'm 79 years old. My health is good, uh, and uh, uh, I've told my doctor, you got to keep me going for another four or five years so I can get this FDR book done. When do you intend on having it finished? Well, I, I hope it'll take me uh, no more than four or five years.
1: Which of these books, and we only have thirty seconds. Which of these books was the hardest to write?
2: Um, well, the, the the early ones. The first book on Dodd was my doctoral thesis. I didn't know if I could write a book. Uh, uh, you know, this was uh, I was a, a novice at this, and then doing the big FDR book. If I were going back to that. Uh, Original FDR book, which I did on foreign policy, uh, I, I would have done it in somewhat different ways. I, some of the detail I would have taken out. All
1: these books still in print? Yes. They and if you read Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson, yep. uh, would you learn something in addition to that if it, you read your dissertation on William Dodd? Uh, yeah, absolutely, because his book only takes Dodd's
2: ambassadorship uh, through the, roughly the first year and a half, and mine goes through the, uh, the whole ambassadorship. Of course, he has a great deal about Martha Dodd,
1: the daughter, who in many ways was more interesting than the father, and uh, I didn't focus on the daughter. <laughs> We've been talking about a book called Camp's Court Inside the Kennedy White House. Our guest has been Dr. Professor Robert Dalek. We thank you very much for joining
2: us. My pleasure to be with you again, Brian.
3: For free transcripts or to give us your comments about this program, visit us at QA.org. Q&A programs are also available as C-SPAN
1: podcasts.